The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Katie Balls on the changing face of number 10, Michael Brandt on the history of war crimes, and Michael Simmons on Nicola Sturgeon's secret state. First up, Katie Balls. The changing face of number 10. David Canzini has made quite an impression since he joined number 10 as the Prime Minister's Deputy Chief of Staff in February. He's there not just to provide focus, but to make the operation feel a bit more traditionally Tory. At a recent meeting with government aides, Canzini, a former Tory party campaign director from the Linton Crosby School of Bluntness, asked for a show of hands. Who was a signed-up Conservative Party member? More than half the room. For the uninitiated, Canzini pointed to membership forms in the corner. Number 10 plans to check on their progress in a few weeks. Canzini's approach marks a wider shift in number 10 to try to repair the Prime Minister's relationship with the Parliamentary Party. When Dominic Cummings ruled the roost in Downing Street, the question was regularly asked if he was a Tory member. He wasn't. During that period, power was centralised and MPs were sidelined. It wasn't unheard of for number 10 aides to refer to parliamentarians as a pest to be ignored, if not exterminated. When Dan Rosenfield, a former Treasury civil servant, was drafted in after Cummings' departure, he tried to be more conciliatory, but he didn't know many MPs and he lacked political noose. It was by no means clear if he was a Tory party member either. Now, since Partygate and the threat of a no-confidence vote, Boris Johnson's survival is in the hands of Tory MPs and their approach to number 10 has had to change. The new number 10 team is not just friendly with MPs, it's led by MPs. Steve Barclay, MP for North East Cambridgeshire, is Chief of Staff, and Andrew Griffith, MP for Arundel and South Downs, is Head of Policy. Twice a week, Griffith meets MPs from various regions and counties to ask and answer questions. Some MPs say it's their first ever meeting in Number 10. There's also a meeting every Monday between the senior Number 10 team, including the new comms chief, Guto Harry, and the chief whip and party chairman to try to avoid the self-forced errors that put Johnson in jeopardy with his party in the first place. The new setup does have drawbacks. Senior cabinet members are dismissive of the idea that Barclay is a traditional chief of staff who can berate them on behalf of their boss. There's something to be said for unelected officials after all, says a government aide. Barclay is talking to MPs more than ministers as they won't accept the hierarchy. The Prime Minister's new team, combined with Johnson's leadership during the Ukraine crisis, has led to optimism in number 10, that even though fines are being dished out to staff by the police, the worst of Partygate could be over. It didn't go unnoticed in Downing Street that a recent Conservative Home Poly members ranking the Cabinet saw Johnson rise 15 points, taking him back into positive figures. The bookie's favourite to succeed him, Rishi Sunak, slumped to the bottom three following his spring statement. The tables have turned, says one Johnson ally. If Johnson's future has been secured for the short term, now attention is moving to the bigger challenge, getting to a point where the Tories are in decent shape for the next election. The new team is a lot more focused on winning a fifth term, says the senior government figure. It comes up in most meetings. 
Aides have been instructed to envisage how things will look in 2024, rather than just in a few weeks' time. Thinking long-term also means thinking beyond the May local elections, when the cost of living will be painful for voters and the Tories are braced for a pasting at the polls. At a recent meeting with Tory MPs in seats where the Lib Dems are the second largest party, Griffiths sought to reassure them that a policy reset is underway. There would be, he promised, more Conservative policies in future. The Prime Minister visited his policy team this week, urging them to come up with radical ideas. Next month's Queen's speech will offer the clearest indicator yet of the new direction of travel. Barclay has been seeking to slim down the number of new laws, bearing in mind the old adage that he who governs least governs best. Plans for a wide-ranging digital competition bill are expected to be ditched in favour of a media bill focused on the sale of Channel 4. MPs in the South have got the way on ending radical housing planning reforms, as well as stopping the mass construction of onshore wind farms. So far, it is a distinctly right-wing agenda. Recent government announcements include the Channel 4 sell-off, tougher language on trans issues, as well as scrapping plans to ban trans conversion therapy, and a consultation on ending the moratorium on fracking. But how long can governing by MPs last? The issue comes down to a fundamental problem. The party is so large these days, there is little unity on any one issue. It's not clear what we all stand for, says one downhearted Downing Street staffer. Moving to the right may help to satisfy some of the loudest voices in the Tory party, but in doing so, number 10 risks a revolt on the left. The parliamentary party has plenty of MPs who still identify as Cameronites. Just look how quickly the government U-turned on a decision to scrap a ban on conversion therapy for gay men when a leak revealing the new plan led to a furious backlash from MPs. Meanwhile, a free vote and an amendment to compel ministers to make a pills-by-post abortion service permanent passed after 72 Tory MPs voted in favour, despite ministers' reservations. Shoring up Johnson was never going to be simple. Downing Street now has a plan for his survival, but even if all his advisers start carrying Conservative membership cards, it won't be possible to take the whole party with them. That was Katie Balls. Next, it's Michael Brandt. The waging of war has never been a pure free-for-all. Every culture has had a sense of limits, when war could be legitimately declared and how it would be legitimately waged. For ancient civilizations, war was a means of preserving the cosmic order. The ancient Egyptians believed their wars had to be sanctioned by the gods. Under the Chu dynasty, Chinese armies would wage war only after oracles were consulted. Similar patterns are observable from the ancient Hindus to the North American Indian tribes. The Second Lateran Council in 1139 banned the crossbow and ballista, the weapons of mass destruction of their day, because these armor-piercing instruments were considered too violent. By the 1300s, a body of customary law had come into being to regulate the behavior of knights, the jus militare, or law of the knights, what we today call chivalry. Formal military courts of chivalry were created to try cases of alleged violations. In the High Middle Ages, These legal notions evolved into various regal ordinances to protect civilian populations against murder, rape, imprisonment, and ransoming. During the High Middle Ages, too, kings issued laws that imposed restrictions on war-making. The first was King John's Constitutions of 1214, which broadened the class of protected persons in wartime to include not only the church, 
but peasants and property. A still more important law may have been King Richard II's ordinances of 1385, banning robbery, plunder, and killing or capturing of unarmed women and clergymen during battle. The Ordinance of Charles VII of France, 1439, and the Scottish Articles and Ordinances of War, 1643, sustained these protections of civilian populations against murder, rape, imprisonment, ransoming, and plunder. It took until the 19th century for the law of war to be conceived as a body of international legal principles, and it wasn't until after World War II that a truly international judicial reckoning was deemed necessary. The Nuremberg International Tribunal and its sister court in Asia, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, were the first to try accused war criminals on the principle of individual responsibility for violating international law. Other international conventions followed, the Geneva Convention, 1948, and the Geneva Conventions, 1949, being among the most significant. The first international criminal tribunal since World War II was formed in the 1990s. The Balkan Wars begot the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia by 1993, while the Rwandan genocide produced a comparable body in 1994. In 1998, the UN created, for the first time in history, a permanent criminal court with jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and crimes against peace. The International Criminal Court's charter, the Rome Statute, is explicitly modeled on the London Charter that created the Nuremberg Tribunal in 1945. The preamble to the Rome Statute describes as one of the ICC's aims the punishment of shocking crimes that threaten global peace. Such language brings to mind the war in Ukraine today. Because neither Russia nor Ukraine were signatories to the ICC, the Rome Statute does not allow prosecution of crimes against peace for the invasion. But crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide might yet be prosecuted there. Moreover, because these acts confer universal jurisdiction, any signatory to the Geneva Conventions or Genocide Convention is legally authorized to prosecute suspected Russian war criminals in their domestic courts. Are these long shots? Maybe. But as we approach the issue of Russian liability for war crimes in Ukraine, it may be premature to wring our hands in dejection. We are creatures capable of bestial cruelty but also with the capacity to set aside our worst tendencies as we reach toward justice. We've done it before in Geneva, Nuremberg, Tokyo, and The Hague. We can do it again. Let Vladimir Putin beware. That was Michael Brandt. And finally, Michael Simmons. Sturgeon's secret state. As Westminster grapples with the P&O scandal, a very different farce over ferries has been playing out in Scotland. In the run-up to the 2014 independence referendum, a Glasgow shipbuilder went bust and was rescued by a Scottish National Party advisor. It was later awarded a £97 million government contract to build two ferries. Neither emerged. The cost now stands at £240 million, and last month, Scots learned that there will be another eight months delay to the boats. What happened? Why did so much public money change hands? Was the taxpayer swindled? Those trying to get to the bottom of these questions have hit a problem common to Nicola Sturgeon's Scotland. Much of the relevant documentary evidence has vanished. 
Jim McCall, the businessman who funded the original bailout, now says the deal was for political capital, but no one has been able to prove anything. This is not a one-off. Poor planning, willful waste and absence of accountability have characterised so many episodes in the SNP's 15 years in power. Under first Alex Salmond and now Sturgeon, Holyrood has become one of the most centralised and opaque regimes in the democratic world. The power devolved to Edinburgh in 1999 has been hoarded by a party under government, it's hard to tell where one stops and the other starts, that specialises in dodging accountability. The SNP's record of failure on public services is matched only by its ability to conceal the extent of that failure. All major decisions are expected to be signed off by Sturgeon's office. Even junior officials talk of referring decisions to her apparatchiks for final approval. The Scottish Government's 175 communications staff dwarf the BBC's 34 reporters, meaning that even the publicly funded broadcasters have one person asking questions for every five who answer them. Remarkably, the bill for Holyrood's press officers and special advisers has increased by 50% since 2018, despite newspaper sales halving since the SNP came to power. Is it any wonder that important questions go unanswered when there is an excess of gatekeepers and a dearth of interrogators? The Scottish Parliament is supposed to hold government to account. The original idea was for a unicameral system to create huge efficiency with no House of Lords to slow things down, but this system means there is little scrutiny. During the Alex Salmon trial, where his evidence against Sturgeon was redacted, members of the Scottish Parliament were warned that they did not have protected speech as MPs do in Westminster. They can be prosecuted by Sturgeon's lawyers if they speak out of turn. Such a threat would never and could never be made to MPs. The First Minister's latest idea is to dispense with even the pretense of parliamentary approval and as part of a future pandemic law to modify or amend any act of parliament without a vote. Unusually for a democracy, the legislature and the executive would be merged. In her defence, one can argue that this has, in effect, already been the case for years. Even businesses have been warned that dissent is not welcome. Jack Perry, the former head of Scottish Enterprise, last year explained how Scottish companies get shot down instantly and boycotted if they cause trouble for the SNP. It's very slick, he said. Tunnock's Tea Cakes got berated for promoting a British identity in export markets rather than Scottish. They subtly changed branding and suddenly there were boycott calls. A 2018 newspaper investigation revealed that companies working for the Scottish Government risk having their contracts terminated if they are disobliging about the SNP. After 15 years of power, the boundaries between party and state have become increasingly blurred. The Salmon Inquiry last year showed the lack of distinction between the SNP, its government, supposedly impartial civil servants and legal officers. The merger is embodied in Butte House, the residence of the First Minister, which she shares with Peter Murrell, her husband, who is the SNP's chief executive. Leslie Evans, the recently departed head of the civil service, is married to a prominent SNP activist. In Westminster, political parties are internal coalitions with lively debates, but inside the SNP, parliamentarians are forbidden from criticising their leadership. Joanna Cherry, for example, was an SNP Home Affairs spokesman and a rising star until she demurred from the party line on trans rights. She has spoken about the abuse, threats, bullying and smears she receives from her own side now she's on the back benches, a warning to others who may be tempted to challenge Sturgeon. Intimidation and fear have been hallmarks of the wider regime. Charities have been subject to gagging orders that prevent them from criticising SNP policies or backing rival campaigns to qualify for state funding. Quangos are now so concerned about political interference that they include it on their formal risk assessments. 
Universities too are on notice. When Louise Richardson was Principal of St Andrews, she warned that Scottish independence might hurt research funding. She was subjected to a 10-minute loud and heated phone call from Salmond. The SNP hasn't grabbed power just from Westminster, but from local government too. Scotland is one of the most centralised countries in Europe, reported COSLA, the country's association of local councillors, in 2014. Since then, ambulances, schools and social care have all come under increased central control. Council tax freezes further erode local authority autonomy. Elected mayors have become commonplace in England, but in Scotland, the man in Holyrood still knows best. In England, the Crown Prosecution Service is independent of the government. In Scotland, the Chief Prosecutor, the Lord Advocate, sits in Sturgeon's Cabinet. This came in handy when she was facing accusations by Salmond that she conspired to put him in prison on false charges to remove him as a political threat. Information has become increasingly hard to obtain from the state. Even before the pandemic, the country's information commissioner warned that the Scottish public sector's obsession with secrecy was a problem with serious systemic failures in the handling of freedom of information requests. These are routinely vetted in spite of a legal requirement for them to be applicant blind. One was recently rejected on the grounds that it would prejudice Scotland's global relations if a critical report on the SNP's school reforms, Curriculum for Excellence, was published in full. Good luck to anyone trying to assess how Scottish pupils are doing. The SNP specialise in hiding poor performance by data divergence, changing the metrics so it's impossible to compare with England. Scotland's schools have now been pulled out of international league tables, having withdrawn from Tim's and Pearl's PISA is the only international education survey in which Scotland still participates. Ministers have even debated quitting that, unsurprising given its most recent damning findings. Some problems are too big to conceal. Under the SNP, drug deaths have tripled to become the highest in the developed world by some margin. Numerous metrics point to the conclusion that Scotland has the worst health service within the UK, yet the Health Foundation said in 2014 that it was impossible to compare health outcomes across the four nations because Scotland had changed the way it collected the data since devolution. During Covid, Sturgeon's system clammed up even more, but it now appears that ministers tried to cover up Scotland's first major Covid outbreak in February 2020. The Health Secretary said the discovery of cases in an Edinburgh hotel should have been made public, but this was overruled. Ministers were also later found to have kept second-wave death and case prediction secret in defiance of the law. Emails sent to and from special advisers about Sturgeon's Covid briefings have been deleted. If Boris Johnson had personally hushed up a Covid outbreak, there would have been a huge scandal and calls for his resignation. In Edinburgh, it's business as usual, all part of Sturgeon's secret state. Devolution was supposed to allow the new government to be held accountable by a new form of scrutiny so that politicians were not in hock to ministers. Enoch Powell famously observed that power devolved is power retained. Sturgeon has made this the lesson of devolution. That was Michael Simmons. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.